This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorj, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted to host Alex Trayman, CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate, JNS. Jewish News Syndicate articles are syndicated by over 50 prominent U.S. Jewish publications, and articles are often cited across mainstream media, and JNS.org enjoys around 500,000 unique visitors per month. Trayman is a veteran Israeli journalist, radio show host, and documentary filmmaker, startup consultant, and public relations specialist. He writes on Israeli political developments and U.S.-Israel relations. Alex Trayman grew up in New Jersey and moved to Israel in 2004, and it was certainly a great delight to have Alex Trayman join us for the inaugural U.S.-Israel Leaders Summit on Capitol Hill in June of this year. And without any further delay, a warm welcome to Alex Trayman. Thank you so much for joining us today on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much, Joel and Natasha. It's a pleasure to be here. Alex, just two weeks ago, we had Governor Israel Gantz on America's Roundtable on the terrorist attack carried out by two Palestinian terrorists murdering four Jewish residents in Judea and Samaria, Israel's heartland. And as you and other leading voices have accurately communicated, it is the biblical provinces. In fact, the recording that we had with Governor Gantz took place in the very location of where innocent Jews were killed. And since then, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his security cabinet authorized a targeted campaign to disrupt the city of Janine's status as a sanctuary for terrorists. And from our vantage point in Washington, D.C., we have also noticed that U.S. leadership has diminished in the Middle East. However, the Biden administration has intensified its efforts uh, to meddle in Israel's political sphere that is, Israel's domestic policies, to apparently benefit the Israeli left and somewhat diminish the importance and the significance of what the Jewish state's center-right is doing. And Alex, what is your response as you review the challenges and the realities on the ground in Israel and the approach taken by the Biden administration to directly interfere in Israel's domestic affairs and calling for efforts that undermine Israel's reform initiatives. Yeah, thank you. You you unpacked a lot in, in a brief question, including the uh, deteriorating security situation here in Israel, uh, particularly uh, from Palestinian uh, terrorists that are operating out of cities like Janin and what the international community calls the West Bank, but what we refer to in Israel as uh, Judea and Samaria. And of course, Jews are called Jews because we come from Judea. Uh, 
and the internet, many members of the international community, including the Biden administration, want the only province in the world called Judea and also the biblical province of Samaria to be turned into a Palestinian state. And they have been using their influence to uh, pressure uh, successive Israeli governments to turn Judea and Samaria into a fully fledged Palestinian state, despite the fact that uh, the Palestinians themselves have continuously rejected uh, any overtures or offers uh, to create a state in those areas. And the Israeli right uh, is aware of the intense security challenges that Israel faces, and particularly in Judea and Samaria. They are well aware of the uh, Palestinian unwillingness to prepare their people towards peace or enter into any kind of a peace arrangement with them, and are aware of the fact that the Palestinian Authority itself uh, finances terror directly by paying terrorists that are sitting in Israeli prisons and paying the families of so-called martyrs that get killed in the act of trying to commit first-degree murder uh, in terror attacks against Jews. Outrageous, yes. And as you mentioned, uh, what's the big issue uh, now domestically in Israel is uh, judicial reform. And because the Israel's left wing is opposed to judicial reform uh, for many different reasons, and it's you can really unwind this situation uh, to its essence uh, which is that you have for the for the first time almost, almost in Israeli history you have a a completely right wing government in Israel. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been the prime minister for fifteen years, and and Netanyahu has always preferred to govern from the center. Uh, as you know, we've had five consecutive elections in Israel over the last four year period um, because uh, members of the left and also some members of the Israeli right. Um, have tired of Netanyahu and, and simply refuse to sit with him, despite the fact that the plurality of Israeli voters continue to vote for Netanyahu and his coalition partners in extraordinarily high numbers. Um, so at the end of the fifth election, the Israeli electorate said, you know, we're, we're sick and tired of, of the parliamentarians conspiring not to sit with Netanyahu. And they voted for the parties that said explicitly that they would sit with Netanyahu, and these are right-wing parties. So after trying to prevent Netanyahu from, from being the prime minister four consecutive times and actually succeeding the fourth time to get him out for a few minutes, Israel's right wing rose up and they put Netanyahu back into power. And Netanyahu has a, a right-wing government really for the first time in his political career. Um, and in Israel, we have a Supreme Court that is a homogenous left-wing court that self-selects its own members. Uh, we, the left-wing court in Israel is an activist court uh, that believes that everything is justiciable. And because we are a country that does not have a constitution, the court over time has grabbed power uh, and frequently will overturn uh, Knesset legislation. Uh, will overturn executive action, will force the Knesset to pass legislation to address certain issues, uh, will force the executive branch of the government to take actions that it otherwise wouldn't do. 
and really is the strongest of the three political bodies in the country. So one of the first things that Netanyahu and his coalition wanted to do when they got into power was to rein in the authority of Israel's Supreme Court, change the way justices are selected, uh, change the ability of the Supreme Court to be able to overturn legislation on the basis of what it calls reasonableness, right? When you don't have a constitution, so why, why do you, why can you overturn a law? Well, the Supreme Court in Israel can say that the law is not reasonable by its own you know, self-made definitions and, and overturn that legislation. So the so Netanyahu wanted to uh, rein in the authority of the courts to limit its abilities within a structure of law. And if you really understand at its essence that what the left-wing court was doing was preventing right-wing policies from being established, now you can understand why a Biden administration uh, would support uh, the op opposition uh, to Netanyahu in trying to push back against any sort of judicial reforms. And in the same way that the State Department has openly uh, lobbied, and in fact, uh, at certain points, uh, put money into campaigns to prevent Netanyahu from, be, from being the prime minister several times over the years. And you can read Netanyahu's book for some case studies on this, you know, that date back all the way to the Clinton administration, and certainly in the Obama administration. Uh, and it's no secret that that Biden would have preferred for Yair Lapid to have won the most recent election for prime minister. And so what the uh, Biden administration is doing right now is meddling uh, in the domestic affairs and making it clear that they do not want to see any sort of judicial reform because that court is the last lever to prevent Netanyahu and his coalition partners from instituting uh, right-wing policies. Right, Alex, I, I would like to actually uh, stress this, what you mentioned. Unlike the United States of America, Israel does not have a constitution. And the Knesset's website states its concerns of failed attempts to draft a formal constitution since 1948 and the evolution of basic laws and rights which have semi-constitutional status. So the Knesset also warns that the Bill of Rights in the basic laws is unfinished. Uh, when we looked at uh, a few months ago, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board entered the debate about judicial reform in Israel uh, by stating, and I quote, Israel's Supreme Court has more power than America's, but without the democratic checks, unbound by any constitution and loose from requirements of standing and justiciability, Israel's court strikes down laws that it finds merely unreasonable, which can cover most anything. Israel's court even has a veto on the appointment of new justices, in contrast to the U.S., where the president and Senate share the appointment power. Unquote. Um, Alex, as Israel's legislators work to rein in the Supreme Court's near-absolute power and dedicate themselves to proper checks and balances, what do you anticipate as next steps in order to cement the ideals of individual liberty, limited government, and the rule of law, while ensuring proper checks and balances of democratic institutions which also have strict laws to root out any political corruption? 
Yeah, I, you know, these are, are pretty complicated questions, and Israel does not have a constitution. And in fact, uh, Israel's public doesn't really view the government uh, through the same lens that uh, citizens in the United States view the American government. And the whole purpose of government in the United States is really to protect individual rights. And the, the country is based on the concept of inalienable God-given rights. The, the beginning of the constitution is a bill of rights. In Israel, you don't really have rights in the same way that you have them in the United States. Uh, and, and I don't really think that many Israelis understand uh, the difference between the Israeli democracy and the uh, American democracy. In Israel, we have privileges, and a lot of privileges can mimic rights, but there's a major difference between a privilege and a right, which is that the government can suspend the privilege, while the whole purpose of having a right is that in a time of conflict or a crisis that the right will actually prevail over the will of the government. In Israel, you actually don't really have that. And so what you do have is a power struggle among different branches of government trying to exert power into the vacuums that are created by the lack of a constitution. So then you would probably ask the question, well, why does not Israel form a constitution? Unlike in America, where you have two major parties, Republican and Democrats, in the last Israeli election, you had 39 parties uh, vying to make it into the Knesset, and 13 parties made it into the into the parliament. So it's it's very, very difficult uh, to come up with agreed upon uh, visions for the state and what the rights and, and regulations should be. You know, and if even if you look at the Jewish code of law, which is is the Talmud, mm -hmm. you, you have 38 volumes of rabbinic arguments where, where schools of rabbis get into argument after argument with each other over what the laws are and how they should be carried out. And, and this, and even though the, this Talmud was written you know, hundreds of years ago, that this culture of uh, argument, which is one of the strengths of Judaism and, and Israel's culture, is also one of its weaknesses. Uh, so it, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, for Israel to get to any kind of agreed upon constitution. And certainly right now, Israel's left is actually using this constitutional crisis uh, in a nation without a constitution to to push for uh, basic rights. However, the rights that the progressive left in Israel is looking to canonize uh, might look very different than some of the right-wing and religious parties that are looking to canonize the protection of explicitly Jewish values, uh, which oftentimes run completely counter to what today uh, would be considered or being as advanced as progressive values. Alex, the recent Wall Street Journal article uh, focusing on Israel stated, and I quote, the U.S.-Israel relationship has also been rocky since Netanyahu took power again at the end of last year, with the White House refusing to invite him to Washington, D.C., unquote. And then in another article, uh, Tom Knights was interviewed uh, by the Wall Street Journal, and he is America's outgoing ambassador to Israel. And he said, and I quote, we need more Mansour Abbas's, which means or refers to the Arab leader in the Knesset, and less other people who shall remain Nameless, And that's what Tom Knights mentioned. And in a recent CNN interview last weekend, President Joe Biden called Netanyahu's coalition partners some of the most extreme members in any Israeli government he has ever seen. And he frequently uses the terms far-right government of Israel. Alex, in the near term, how do you view U.S.-Israel relations 
And what is your message to our engaged and enlightened listeners on America's Roundtable regarding the future of U.S.-Israel relations? I, I would say that the U.S.-Israel relationship is in a bit of a yo-yo because uh, just a few years ago when uh, Donald Trump was the president of the United States, it looked like Israel-U.S. relations were at a high point. And now just a couple of years later, it looks like U.S.-Israel relations are at a low point. So there is this yo-yo situation back and forth. And I think that a lot of the um, the opposition to Netanyahu's rule uh, in Israel from the U.S. administration doesn't really date back to this last election. It actually goes back to 2015 when Netanyahu marched into Congress uh, to address the joint sessions in order to oppose uh, the Obama administration's uh, racing into the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, uh, which was going to remove sanctions from Iran, which was actually in, in certain you know, actually delivered cash on pallets uh, into into Iran, um, all while allowing the Iranians to continue to develop a uh, program, a nuclear program, which could be weaponized. Uh, and of course, the Iranian regime openly chants death to Israel and is now creating the ability to develop the weapons that could be used to wipe Israel off the map. So for, for Netanyahu, uh, the Iran nuclear deal represented an existential threat uh, to the state of Israel. But by going in there and opposing the sitting president of the United States from the floor of the U.S. Congress, uh, it was uh, it, it really soured um, Netanyahu and Obama's relationship. And of course, Biden was the vice president during that time. And so the State Department and, and the Biden administration, they uh, view Netanyahu with, with a great deal of skepticism. Uh, they see opposing the Iran nuclear deal and uh, you know being skeptical also of the Palestinian Authority is extremely right-wing. Uh, in Israel, we just look at it as realist you know that uh, the iranians are posing as ex existential threat to the state that the palestinian authority is funding the the distribution and uh of terrorists uh you know moving into the streets and and mowing down innocent civilians um so there's kind of a fundamental difference of defining what's right and far right and left but uh you know i think that as long as the Biden administration is in office and Netanyahu is in office, you're going to have this type of tension. When Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett uh, were rotating the prime ministership for one year uh, after the fourth election, the, the pressure from the Biden administration uh, cooled down tremendously because they will do, and they've proven that they will do, uh, anything that they can to, to try to get Netanyahu out of office. Right. I mean, Alex, you mentioned about... Uh actually failed Obama's policies that Biden is pursuing right now. And on June 10, 2023, Reuters reported that the Biden administration provided a sanctions waiver and authorized the transfer of almost $2.8 billion from Iraq to Iran. And by releasing funds to Iran, Biden is continuing, again, with the Obama administration failed policies. And on the other side, the oil-rich Iraq, which is the OPEC group's second largest producer, is importing Iranian energy. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts about this? And, uh, and how, do we, how close is Iran now to developing at least one nuclear weapon? Yeah, so the, the problem with Iran is that they're not close to developing one nuclear weapon. They, they've reached the the uh, enrichment of uranium will 
where breakout wouldn't be breakout to a singular nuclear weapon. It would be breakout to a whole cachet of nuclear weapons. Um, and so they've been enabled by uh, the U.S. and Western powers to continue to enrich uranium, enrich, 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 uh, build out some of the uh, weaponization's components onto the uh, unwatchful eye of the, the, the United Nations atomic energy agency uh and they they can now very very quickly become a full-fledged uh nuclear weapons power uh and so you know israel just can't understand you know why the nation that's supposed to be their greatest ally in the world is, is actually doing everything in their power not just to permit iran from becoming a nuclear weapons power but actually to assist them uh in becoming a nuclear weapons power and at the same time they continue to provide funding uh this administration in particular has increased the funding that was cut off uh by the previous trump administration to the palestinian authority uh and and so what you have is israel's greatest ally actually funding israel's most potent enemies and at the same time criticizing the government over and over again for its domestic policies and so while israel and the united states are uh allies and that includes a lot of intelligence and military uh cooperation technology and the like and and also shared values uh democratic values and cultural values um you know there's definitely there's definitely some areas of this relationship that are that appear to be uh mightily broken and so the question is really you know how can can israel ride out the clock of the biden administration and will biden remain in office for a second term or would somebody that carries on the same policies towards israel uh, as biden has carried out will they be in office or will we see uh, a return to a republican administration either a trump-led administration or a let administration led by somebody like Ron DeSantis, who who is is very, very uh, supportive of Israel and would certainly roll back a lot of the Biden administration, been very critical of the Biden administration's policies. So again, Israel is caught up in this in this yo-yo right now. And uh, right now it's 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 a sour point. And the question is, how long will this sour point uh, remain? Right. I mean, Alex, these yo-yo policies are hurting not just Israel, but other countries in the Middle East, and I would say the world. Uh, you mentioned the Trump administration. I mean, the, the Abraham Accords were signed in Washington, D.C., between Israel, UAE, and Bahrain, and all of them committed to pursue a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world, with Morocco and Sudan joining uh, actually, we all anticipated that more Arab countries were expected to join. So it was the first time that these Arab countries established their relationship with Israel. Also, they all aligned against Iran. And for the first time, they demonstrated that the peace and prosperity in the Middle East is possible, despite Palestinian leadership opposition. And that was just in 2020. So the momentum that was built through the Abraham Accords by the Trump administration was reversed by the Biden administration, which you refer to as a yo-yo policy. So America's administration under President Biden let China broker a reconciliation agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And in early June, 
Iran announced that it will form naval alliance with Gulf states to ensure regional stability. So in light of the decades-long Iran's proxy wars in the region, its nuclear program being an existential threat to Israel, Iranian government repeatedly vowing to wipe Israel off the map, they claim to form naval alliance with Gulf states for regional stability. Uh, Alex, what is your message to America? I mean, you know, for to, to electorate in order to advance U.S.-Israel partnership to contain Iran and that we get back to the Abraham Accords and getting new countries to join for peace and prosperity, not just for the Middle East, but the world as well. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of what we discussed earlier in this, in this interview was complicated, and this part is actually very simple. Okay, the Trump administration clearly threw 100% of their support uh, behind Israel and said that they were going to get engaged in the region and get engaged in the region to support Israel. Okay, they, they stopped funding the Palestinian Authority and all of the NGOs like UNRWA and UNESCO that all uh, propagate narratives that are, are anti-Israel. And what you saw was vis-a-vis Israel and the Palestinian Authority the quietest period in recent Israeli history in regards to terror because the Palestinians understood that the United States supports Israel. In the rest of the region, the United States looked for ways to incentivize Arab nations to make peace with Israel. Uh, They were aggressive in coming up with those formulas. And like you said, within just a very short period of, of less than a year, four nations entered into normalization agreements with the Jewish state, reversing decades of uh, anti-Israel thinking in the the greater Arab world and and the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, And when the Trump administration was walking out of office, uh, Trump and uh, David Friedman, the United States uh, ambassador to the state of Israel, members of Netanyahu's administration here, uh, all stated that they thought that it would be possible to sign anywhere from five to 10 different normalization agreements if the same policies were uh, continued. Of course, they were not. Uh, and the Biden administration uh, not only did they fail to get other nations to to sign normalization agreements with Israel, but they even actually re-evaluated the normalization agreements that were signed, uh, and they've actually harmed the relations with the nations that have already signed the normalization agreements with Israel. So not only have they slowed the momentum or stopped the momentum, they've even reversed uh, a lot of the momentum. And, and part of the the way that they did that was by bringing the Palestinian issue back to the center of mm. the greater Arab-Israeli conflict. What, what, what led to the Abraham Accords was the complete sidelining of the Palestinian Authority issue, saying that, you know, Israel can is is a member of this region is a productive member of this region is a peace-seeking member of this region and has a lot to offer all the neighbors around the region that also are looking to to modernize and and have progress and to figure out uh some of the challenges to environmental issues like like solar power and water cons- uh preservation um and medicine and technology and intelligence sharing, and that Israel has a lot to offer the region. But the United States has brought the Palestinian issue back to the center. Uh, they've also brought uh, the Iranian regime closer to uh, 
to becoming a nuclear power. And, and what that's done is that it has forced nations in the Middle East to turn to other powers because they cannot, they feel like they cannot rely on the United States. And, it, and if, if the Saudis feel they cannot rely on the United States, well, they look around the world and they say, well, who's another world power? And now they're looking to China to create the, to fill the vacuums that are being created by, by empty and weak uh, U.S. policies. And what do we see? We see the destabilization of the region. We see bad actors coming in and we see more violence. So I, ultimately, you know, the, the formula is very simple. If you put your support directly behind the one productive and peace-seeking nation in the region, the one nation that supports uh, democracy and democratic values and Western values, what you're going to get is is peace in the region. And, and if you continuously go against the interests of that one ally, and against all the American allies, for that matter, what you're going to get is destabilization and violence. Right. I mean, it really appears like a deliberate effort to actually go against peace, security and prosperity in the Middle East. Well, it seems like that. But, uh, you know, looking from from the Middle East at what's going on in America, what you're also seeing is that the, the same people that are destabilizing the region are, are actually destabilizing America. Right. And the entire world for that matter. So you have to you have to look at it within the the greater the greater themes that are are taking place globally and if the United States no longer wants to be the moral superpower of the world, the power that prevents violence, what you're going to get in in the vacuum is is violence. Yeah. And indeed, that's a very worthy challenge for a nation like the United States to really address uh, the issues that we face on the American landscape, but also how vital American leadership is on the world stage. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the nations of this region are looking, you know, to the United States to uh, address the moral leadership position and to really work, use its the strength of its economy, the strength of its military to push back against rogue actors uh, in this region. And unfortunately, the United States is putting their support behind uh, some of these uh, rogue actors and, and they are, are really destabilizing efforts. But I would say I would I that the the concept of normalization, the Abram Accords, the, the train has left the station. And so even though uh the momentum is is slowed and maybe it's ground to a halt, as I said, the train has left the station. And I do think that mm. uh regardless of the you know of of the lack of American leadership uh, in pushing this forward, I, I do hope and believe that uh, wiser forces will prevail and that ultimately uh, the normalization agreements signed between Israel, the Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan will prove their worth and that other nations uh, will figure out the formulas necessary uh, to continue the trend and to sign further normalization agreements. Alex, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Alex Trayman is the CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate. We encourage our engaged listeners to visit JNS.org. Alex, thank you for providing us all with clarity, of real moral clarity and, and relaying important insights. Thank you indeed, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. And appreciate your optimistic message at the end. So we continue with Abraham Accords. Yeah, and I do think that Israel is uh, really moving forward in a, in a powerful direction and uh, will continue to survive all the challenges uh, that we face, both from uh, the Palestinian Authority, Iran, and even from Western powers that are highly critical of our, of our government. This is a strong country and it's moving in the right direction. 
All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan Insami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, health, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com.